everybody. You are listening to a smart guy, dumb guy. I am one of your hosts, Johnny Morrison. And with us, as always, is your very intelligent co-host. And I guess not today on the day of the day of the release of this podcast, but recently celebratory anniversary host. That sentence is dumb. Christian Surge. Wow. <laughs> I rarely hear you stumble over words like that. You have the words all in you, and I'm the one who usually stumbles. You better keep it in. Well, everyone, <laughs> everyone, if you're just joining us for the next 23 minutes or so, we're going to have a conversation about culture, current events, and politics from both a smart and dumb point of view. Yours to decide with, evidently, on this episode. Mm-hmm. I wanted to leave it in the people's court. People's court. <laughs> I was reading an article today, Johnny, in the New York Times about the new or next debate that Trump and Biden are going to have, and they actually are going to mute them. Mm-hmm. Did you read that? I did see that. It's amazing. What, what kind of person needs to be muted? That's my question. Um, wow. Uh, you know, someone... Someone with so many things to say is the, is the <laughs> nicest way that I can think of saying that. It's, it is so funny to think of uh, having to add mute buttons to a presidential debate. Like, even if, you, even I, if you love Trump, it's funny to think about having to add a mute button. I just don't get it. It literally feels like we're in some kind of uh, pet store. And, you know, they open the window or the door for the dog and they want to mute the dog or they want to mute the animals. Or, like, when a, when a teacher, a school teacher, a kindergarten teacher is like, hey, use your inside voice. Like, that's what I feel like we're doing here mm-hmm. with the mute button. Full-grown adults have to hit the mute button. I mm-hmm. don't get it. It's amazing. It's amazing. So, and I, I, uh, I don't... I was not interested in watching the debate. Like, especially after the first one, I was like, I'm not interested in watching another one of these. Um, we're not learning anything. Yeah, me neither. But I am a little interested simply because they're installing a mute button to see how that actually works. <laughs> and and to see if, if the moderators, like, like who has the gumption to press the mute button on the former vice president of the United States of America and the yes. actual president of the United States of America? Like, that's a, that is such a crazy thing to ask someone to do. And not only are they hitting the mute button, but they're actually going to give the time to the other person if they talk over them. So it's like, oh, well, you, you know, you, you interrupted. You, he deserves the, his time. It's like he deserves his time at the dinner table too. You're just like, what is like this is this is like children. Yeah, we should get one of those for us. Mute buttons. <laughs> I'm gonna mute. You should just mute me all the time. <laughs> Well, I wish Biden and Trump uh, a great success and a fair and equal debate. Mm-hmm. I hope that uh, they really do give each other the right amount of time and can actually be adult. And uh, I don't think it's going to change anybody's mind, but I'm really mostly interested just because they're treating him like children. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. Totally agree with you. Nothing's going to change. No one's going to have their minds like radically shaped by what happens in this moment. But it is oh. a fascinating place that we find ourselves in. And, you know, to be honest, like Trump does bring a new dynamic to political debates, but I don't know that I've like the democratic debates leading up in uh, 2016, like they're mildly better, but 
everybody talks over each other. Everybody's arguing all the time. Everybody's trying to score political points, have that one like pithy catchphrase that then goes viral. Like it's very rare that it feels like these things are policy driven. Maybe adding a mute button and consequences about time will actually create some space for a policy driven conversation. Probably not though. I mean, I remember back in the, I don't know, back the last four or five elections and they tend to talk about the same policies and mm-hmm. you know me and my friends would sit around and be like are these really the policies that matter are these the policies that are going to change our lives right like when when the pro-life and pro-choice uh, discussion they're so complicated they're just not simple subjects and we throw them out and give a politician two minutes to discuss it mm-hmm. and then we decide our vote based on that i don't think that's smart actually i think that's dumb if that's the way if that's our decision Mm -hmm. i think we should look deeper into these policies that they're discussing way prior to a two-minute debate where children are going to have to have the mute button pressed on them right like it just doesn't make any sense to me i I think all right i'm gonna actually do some research on what uh what this means so that's exactly right in the video as we're talking uh I keep seeing this cat like coming through and around your microphone and on the window seal. Are you uh-huh. a cat person? I, um, if are you asking me if I'm a cat person or a dog person, well, I, I, I am I, a cat I, person, but I, I would say I am an animal person. Have you had a dog and or a cat? So I had a cat recently, not recently. I had a cat when I was 19 years old, two cats. I called them Calvin and Hobbes. One was a calico cat. One was a gray cat. And, I fed them chicken livers a lot and they loved oh, that. Yeah. I have yeah. I have two children screaming outside my window. I don't know if you can hear them. I, I can't hear them. But I've also had dogs most of my life and I would say I'm a dog person because I like the animals to mind me. <laughs> yeah, dogs dogs do tend to be more excited about you. Like they love you. Uh-huh. You know, you walk in, they're like, Oh, I've been waiting all day. I love you, I love you. And you're like, here's your ball. They're like, I love you. You do the cat, the cat's like I've been waiting for you all day and I'm pissed off and I'm walking away and I don't care. (laughs) And you're eating and I'm going to come and and put my butt in your face because you haven't paid attention to me all day, even though I'm upset. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you look in their eyes and and you see them think, I want to eat you. If I was only big enough to Mm -hmm. eat you, Mm -hmm. I would. Yeah. Yeah. People who like cats are just, you know, we like taking risks every day. We like to live on the wild side of life every single day to live with a little, a little murderous psychopath (laughs) who's plotting our demise. If only they weren't so fluffy and adorable. Well, if you like cats, you might like this article that I found today about the 2000 year old cat etching found at the Nazca line site in Peru. This, I don't know if you know anything about this, but it's this place in Peru where there's a bunch of pictures and images and trails and they claim that it's 2000 years ago. And I just, I love history and I think buildings are great and all kinds of artifacts, but a cat that looks like my gray calico cat, 2000 year old uh, drawing, I'm, I'm calling bullshit. You don't believe, Oh, you don't believe that it was actually like a historic like I don't. Oh, I don't. I think that there are some hist- historic uh, lines and historic things, but when I see in 2020, oh, we just discovered this cat. <laughs> like, there's no satellite imagery of this for the last 30 years, and all of a sudden it appears, and it's 2,000 years old. No way. 
So, okay, so if it's not a historic relic, who do you think is responsible for uh, the cat sketching graffiti? Well, it isn't obvious. Cat lovers. <laughs> it's just a big marketing ploy by cat lovers all over the world to stretch a 40-yard uh, etching into the hillside of a Peruvian mountain. It's a catoglyph. It's like a, it's like a cat geoglyph. I, I, I just, I think it's ridiculous. And it really got me thinking about, you know, my cat or a dog person. And they talk about a footprint of a recent, you know, I don't know, extremist or something putting their footprint. They're like, it's going to be there for a thousand years. I'm like, you just drew a picture of a cat on a mountain that you're claiming is, you know, historically 2000 years old. You know, the time of Christ, they drew a cat that looks like something right now. What if it was though? Like what, like here's the thing that's fascinating about history. Like what if it is just a person or a group of people who were like way into their cats 2000 years ago living in Peru and they have done something unintentionally just demonstrating their love for their cats that will live in infamy larger than so many other great works of art or cultural accomplishment. Just this large cat graffiti in the hillside of Peru might outlive just anything we ever do. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yes, it is. But this city, <laughs> this city was was occupied by like thousands of people. This little area. Do you think that two thousand years ago, you're sitting there, you've got this highly populated city, and you know you go, hey, hey, John, let's go, uh, let's go draw a picture of a cat in a mountain with our feet. And so they draw it with their feet, or they draw it with their their, and then all of a sudden, like, do you think everybody's gonna just like? not look at it for the next like four or five years, or you're never going to have your friends up there on the mountain to look at your cat and they're never going to go and be upset at you and cross graffiti the cat. Like it's a perfectly drawn cat. Anyway, I don't know. It doesn't, it's not, I don't know why it upsets me. So I just don't want to be played like this. I, don't, I, I, I love conspiracy theories as you know, but this just feels wrong to just me. It's a big troll from Petco, big cat. Well, speaking of wrong, I uh, and murderous cats uh, had a horrible experience over the weekend. Uh, on Friday night, about 3 a.m., I was woken up by screams right behind my house. Mm. Uh, a car was peeling out. Uh, people were speaking in both English and Spanish. And I hear what I thought a moment was a gunshot. And I've heard a lot of gunshots in my life as well. I'm a hunter or was a hunter. And... I soon identified that as a, a like a, a, a window being shattered in the car. There's a there's a percussion of that that you can feel that travels like a bullet, but it has a more uh, thick sound. It's like a boom, and you're just like, what was that? I hear people screaming. I hear uh, what sounds like metal being hit on on metal. Um, I hear people uh, skirmishing and fighting, and then a car peels out and slams into something really hard. And then I hear horrifying blood curling screams. The car evidently squeals back. I hear it squeal back and smash this thing again and smash it again a second time. So I run outside. Uh, there had been a fight and a man had been run over by the car twice. His head is gushing with blood. Uh, the uh, perpetrator took off in the car and it was the most horrific scene of screaming and crying that I had seen in a long time. Now I have uh, seen uh, burglaries. I've seen, uh, I've been in instances where children die. I've been in instances where children are sold into slavery. 
this incident happened right behind my house. What we're calling a murder outside of our house. We, the police, of course, what was interesting, they won't give us, of course, any information. Hmm. Even though crime lab was out, as the paramedics came, I saw them bring uh, supplies in. And then a few minutes later, I saw them bringing the bags of sailing back to the ambulance. Uh, the guy had has cracked his head open and the car had run over him twice. And I just... I don't understand, number one, why there is so much anger and terror in the world, number one. Number two, it's really showed me a little bit about humanity and how people around reacted. And number three, I had story after story as I, as I talked to my neighbors on why they wouldn't uh, give any information to the police and why they wouldn't want to get involved. Hmm. And that made me sad because it was an example of systemic racism. For those of you who are listening, if you don't believe in systemic racism, you've got a problem. You've got a really big problem. I had a neighbor come up to me and he goes, yeah, Christian, I've worked for the hospital for 20 years. 20 years I'm in the hospital. Five years ago, there was an accident. I have training. I go to, in my plain clothes, I go to try to help these people and the police come. I end up getting put in jail because they didn't believe me that mm -hmm. I was trying to help because of my color, because of where I lived in this city where we live. Because mm -hmm. I lived right here, Christian. I live right here, right next to you. And where I live is a primarily Latino neighborhood. I had another neighbor say, oh, so that same neighbor, he said, well, that's why I saw the whole thing. I live right upstairs from this guy. I saw the whole thing and there's no way I'm going to give any information to the police officers. I said, well, what happened? He's like, it was a fight. The guy tried to kill him and he killed him. So right now the, the police, the police, of course, they don't want to give any information. It's not in the newspapers. Hmm. It's not reported as a burglary or as a murder or anything that happened in my town because the town is surrounded. My belief is the town is surrounded by suburbs and we're the only little spot that's not a suburban hmm. area. And so you can't even find out this incident. But it happened. And as the police came, they taped it off. And the way they were treating everybody was uh, very revealing. Hmm. So what I, the question I have for people who've ever witnessed some kind of traumatic event like this, seen uh, a fight that gets uh, bloody or where the, the end effect is someone dying, how do we respond? What do we do now? And as a white guy in a Latino neighborhood, how do I respond? Mm. What do I do? Yeah. Can I, can I ask you a question that is like, just maybe a little before that? Um, sure. So that's a lot to see. Um, how are yeah. you and like your family feeling? My wife is really shaken up. Yeah. She cried for two days about the family. We uh, know the stepbrother of the guy who was killed. He is around us all the time. He's part of this community. And uh, myself, I, I think it's horrifying. I think it's ridiculous. I wish people would stop hurting each other. I tend to process things a little differently based on the, maybe my experiences. I've seen that, heard this kind of thing before. My reaction is always, uh, has always been uh, a bit of protection and how do I insert myself to work to help people? And mm -hmm. that maybe helps me process this. Hmm. Yeah, I, that makes a lot of sense. 
but it's a lot for you to to experience. I wonder, like, what have you done, or what do you need as like a family unit to process through? It feels like a part of the question of what do we do and how do we respond is like, what what do you do and how do you and your wife respond? Well, we're we're believers in hope and peace and uh, intentionally uh, having conversations with the people around us. Uh, we it's really important to me to, I don't know. I don't know the answer to the question. I don't know what we would need. I know that Anna needs time and really wants to help, hmm. but we also don't want to be perceived as the white people that are helping. Cause like when, when my neighbor, uh, as I walked along a different alleyway to get back to my house, a neighbor was like, Hey, hello. And I was like, Hey, how, you know, hola, como esta? And, and we had a little conversation and he was like, Hey, my name is Ruben. I was like, hey, my name's Christian. He goes, oh, we know. <laughs> we know your name. So, I don't know. Do you feel like, you can also tell me to stop asking questions in this in this vein, but I wonder like, so there's the way in which you engage the neighborhood, which I think is an important part of this conversation, but like, is there things that you can <clears throat> name about your own like internal healing and recovery and um, like what you do to protect you and Anna from things that are emotionally difficult or even traumatizing? What do I do to protect myself and my family? Mm -hmm. And like from from the emotional and traumatic effects of seeing and witnessing and hearing something like that. Like, is there something you guys are doing to unravel some of that and recreate a sense of peace? Well, we've been talking to each other quite Mm -hmm. a bit about it. And this is something that Anna hasn't heard a lot. She hasn't heard these things. And, And if you've ever heard something like this, it's terrible. Like it's, it's almost worse than seeing it. The sounds Hmm. kind of haunt you. And I feel like whenever I came back from a traumatic situation, uh, the counsel that I was always given was to talk to the people who were also involved Mm. with that. You know, that's why you see people who come back from the military, they're always talking about their brothers in battle and they get together because it, it doesn't just go away with one process or with one night of drinking or with one night of talking. Mm -hmm. It's a continual thing. And those, and it's not like a grieving there's like a grieving process for these moments where it's not set in stone. There's not a, uh, oh, you're going to go into this stage and then this stage and this stage. They just kind of hit you whenever they hit you. Mm-hmm. It's not like you you plan it. And so uh, being able to get lots of rest as well as talk through those moments again and again if you have to, to, I don't know, get it out. So that's really I know how all I know what to do, but you're the reverend. That's that's why I brought this subject up. Is like, <laughs> what should I do? How should I respond? And and how should we respond when these traumatic things happen? Mm. Like it doesn't have to be a murder mm-hmm. for you to feel trauma. Trauma is based upon our, our own experiences. Something that's traumatic to me may not be traumatic to somebody else. Mm-hmm. There was a test given by my wife. They grew up uh, with generational poverty and and in Section Eight housing. and And her sister ranked like zero on the scale of one to ten for, with trauma, and mm-hmm. she ranked on the my wife ranked on the scale six out of ten. Mm-hmm. So like they perceived trauma in very different ways. Mm-hmm. So what do we do? Yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate you. You know, asking that question and then also being vulnerable about like the own your own experience in the midst of this and the way you're processing. Like those are those are heavy things, Christian. So I'm sorry that that mm-hmm. was your experience this weekend. Um and it there's a good it is it feels like there's a couple of good different questions you're asking. There's like what is the thing that you do internally? And then what is the thing that you do in the community? But there is a connection in that like what you just said is true. Like trauma 
is an experiential reality that is different for each of us. But trauma is not only an individual reality. Communities can experience trauma as a whole, and even generations can experience trauma. There's some new research into the way in which trauma can be handed from one generation to another generation to another generation because of past experiences that are then um, you know, replicated in kind of new ways. And so what you're naming in terms of systemic racism in a neighborhood, well, that's playing on inherited trauma from systemic racism in the past. So there's trauma at some level kind of like all around the situation that you're identifying. Um, yeah, I noticed the community trauma. Most of them that I talked to said, oh, Christian, this doesn't happen very often, only once or twice. This is a good community. They were, they were trying to console me. Hmm. They were trying to help me say, you know, there's just a few people. Uh, one guy said, hey, I grew up with these kids. I know the hmm. guy who got run over and I know the guy he, he was fighting with. And it's it's going to be okay. Um, I hope you still like this neighborhood. Mm. And then, as I'm cleaning up the glass the next morning, so I could pull my car out of the garage, one of the guys, his brother, I didn't know this stepbrother, came over and he's helped me clean up. He wouldn't look him in the eye, and I was like, "Hey, man, uh, we don't. No, I, I got this." And he's, "No, no, I, I, I'll do this. I'm going to clean this up. Mm. It's my family." And I was like, "Oh my gosh!" And he, he looked up at me, tears in his eyes, and I. I I'm not going to say his name on on uh, yeah. the podcast, but you know, I said his name, and I said, "It, I, I'm so sorry. Like, I, hmm. I am so sorry." And he's like, "We'll get through this." And the community, all I felt like felt felt the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, uh, and it also makes sense like the kinds of responses you're seeing. Like one of the most important things that a person can that you're working through is you're trying to like heal from trauma is finding a sense of restored agency. Because oftentimes mm. what happens in trauma is that you feel like your agency is removed from you. Like that you no longer had power, you no longer had control, you were no longer safe in your own body or whatever the, you know, the experience is. And so even small gestures like that, like I'm going to go clean up the glass, is a way in which we kind of assert our own agency back into the situation. That, that I'm mm. still human, I'm still here, you can't rob me of my dignity and my power. I'm still going to, I still have something to do. And even the, I think maybe some of the words about the community make sense in light of that. Like you don't get to, this, this moment doesn't get to steal those things from me. That, that feels like that shows such a deep resiliency. Hmm. My wife was like, I want to do this hmm. thing. And so I was like, yeah, you should do that thing. Hmm. If that's what you feel compelled to do. And I think that was what you just named is because she felt very powerless. Mm-hmm. And, you know, frightened and, uh, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that was her response to that. Or is, and it's, it's a continual response. Yeah, totally. I think that's a lot of our responses. And it's a, good, it's a good thing to begin to work through, which is like, even, you know, like even on an in, internal level and probably first on an internal level, the question that we have to ask is like, how do we restore a sense of agency internally? Like, um, like when I am, when something traumatic happens or even something really scary I can often, you know, people lose a sense of internal agency, like their fear reflexes, which is maybe fight, flight, freeze, any of those things take over. And you're like, oh, I lost control in that moment. And I ran away or I fought in a way that I didn't want to. And so even then there's a sense of like, how do I take ownership and leadership over my internal workings again? So then I can also enter into the community around me with a sense of like healthy agency. Cause I don't, I also don't want to enter in with a sense of coping agency, which is like, hmm. I'm going to get to work so that I don't have to deal with the fear that has now been generated from this event. Okay. 
Yeah, I had a neighbor ask me, he said, did your wife just say, we got to get out of here? And I said, no, actually the opposite. Hmm. She was like, I want to face this and I want to get through this. And yeah, there wasn't a lot of coping. We were, <laughs> yet, I hope there's not a lot of coping. Um, we didn't pull out the whiskey bottle or <laughs> anything like that. Or, you know, we, we keep talking about it. Yeah, that's good. That's good. And I think like, like I, you, you guys know how to do hard emotional work. So I think you'll do the right hard emotional work. And then, you know, then the, the, that goes to the question about how do you engage in a community? And I would think that the best, and it sounds like you're doing this. So this is more for everybody else. Like I think the best way to engage in a community that has experienced some level of trauma is to be a participant in their agency. So what does it look like for me to listen? What does it look like for me to attune to what's happening? How do I join with the leadership of the community around me who, first of all, has way more wisdom, way more experience, and way more like mm. emotional connection to this. And so I want to be involved, yes. But I don't, like that's what I think stops it from being what you named the white savior, which is like, well, don't be that. Go be mm. a helper and a listener and a learner recognizing that leadership should rest with the folks around you and that it um, like the folks around you are deeply wise about how to navigate this water. And so you have something to learn just as much as you have a way to participate with them. Yeah. That's such great advice to just hang out and let them lead and be a participant in the way that they would handle this. Uh, I think that just, that just feels like the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. Well, it's, it's a sad weekend for this town and this, more particularly this neighborhood. And you can feel it. Hmm. You can see it. And I hope that this neighborhood just continues to get stronger, really, because they, they all seem to know each other. Hmm. And the more I hang out with them, just going and hanging out with them, finding out more about uh, my neighbors the more I feel their trust in me and that I'm there to be a part of the community, not to save or to destroy or to change. It's more of how do I become a part and mm. of this bigger community? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. <sighs> I get to a fence, I got you mad. I guess I when I get to it last Get it then I'm never going back Get it then I'm never going back Going up, going up, going up, going up, going up, going up Get it then I'm never going up Going up, going up, going up, going up, going up, going up Get it then I'm never going Never going You have been listening to One Direction by NBHD Nick in this community, the pandemic has hit us in a very different way because most of the people here are essential workers or deemed mm. essential workers, which feels a little strange to say to me. It feels uncomfortable to say, you're essential workers because it's essential that we all work. But a lot of the people here are working in restaurants mm. and uh, gas stations and construction. And uh, I live right by an equestrian park. And so there's a lot of people that work over there. And the... The pandemic has treated them very differently, and there's you know there's there's some mask wearing, but uh, it's it's just they've got to work and they've got to get through and they've got to pay their bills, and I think the pandemic has affected things across the nation in very vastly different ways, especially higher education. 
That's exactly right. It's, I mean, pretty obvious to anybody who's like paying attention to the news or has like young people they know and love, or maybe they are a young person who's in college, like that college life has been really disrupted by COVID-19. Semesters didn't start at the beginning until much later. They started on Zoom. The University of Utah have brought back some students and then has like isolated some students. And so you basically do classes in your dorms, can eat and then go back to your dorm. So it's like you're mixing the weird like Zoom distance while on campus altogether. But then you've seen some campuses begin to reopen and become, you know, super spreaders for coronavirus. And it's brought a lot of questions to the table about higher education, especially those institutions that center on people going to them. So, you know, famous schools like Yale or Harvard or Notre Dame. And Notre Dame has been a hot, like a bit of a super spreader. Like, it's brought a bunch of questions to the table. Like, what happens to higher education in the United States post-COVID? Is, it, is COVID-19 changing higher education fundamentally? Or is it at least revealing something about um, higher education in the United States that is problematic, that needs to change? Um, I was interested in talking about this with you because you have two children who are, like, one is about to be college-aged, one is college-aged. Like, wondering what you're thinking about as, like, a dad whose kids are, like, you know, in and out of the college world and pursuing it. Like, how does COVID make you think differently about your kids in college? Well, you know, first, we've sold our kids as a nation on the college experience, the experience yes. that, you know, uh, Harvard set up in the early 1940s, this idea of leaving, going away to college, being in the dorms, uh, having that uh, coming-of-age story happen where you're your own person, your own life, even though you're probably taking money from your parents, but um, that college experience. And, you know, I am actually officially still a teacher at J. Sarah Catholic Private High School. It's $20,000 a year to go there. Mm -hmm. And every time we made a decision, the staff would sit around and they would say, is this a $20,000 experience? Hmm. And I think what is happening hmm. and what colleges haven't figured out yet, and I think they know this, is what is the $60,000 experience? Well, that isn't just getting a diploma for kids anymore. It's, mm-hmm. or it wasn't at all. It was always part of the experience to be on campus and learning. I mean, hell, we made movies about it. Goodwill Hunting and Dead Poets mm-hmm. Society. I mean, like, like it's... It's part of, I, th- I would say, Americana. Oh, totally. Yes, that is totally true. Like, you go to, yeah, it's 100% true. You go to college, you have this, like, kind of ruckus college experience. It's actually meant to be kind of problematic and, like, mm-hmm. disastrous, and it matures you somehow into an adult, and then you maybe leave some of that behind, but you have your best memories, your best connections, and this, like, skill set that then you go out into the world you know, and get a job and build your career off of that experience. And all of a sudden, like in COVID-19, that is it, it's specifically what you just named, the experience of college, not the education that has been disrupted because mm. it is dangerous to try to replicate the experience in a pandemic. Oh, for sure. You get super <laughs> spreaders. That's what happened. You get super spreaders when they try to replicate it in, in COVID-19, right? They try to bring the kids back and continue to have this experience. Mm-hmm. I think that's what you're saying. And then you have a super spreader event and they have to close the school. By the way, I was doing some research. This isn't unlike the way Harvard handled the 1918 flu pandemic. Oh, interesting. So they didn't close the schools right away. In fact, the health instructor of Harvard said, no, no, we've, uh, by tomorrow, he's like, in, in four or five days, we'll have this under control. 
Hmm. By the weekend, 198,000 people died like in, in that area, and they shut schools down. So hmm. colleges not handling pandemics well, it's historical. Mm, I love that. That's so funny. Yeah, and I think I, I, that's, that's amazing. I'm glad that you did the research on that. I think it is revealing too, like what you named really well is that what young people are paying for, what their parents are paying for, what debt is paying for um, is this experience and the connections that come with that experience. And like there's problems with that in so many ways. Like one, it's problematic because it for the most part excludes a whole, the majority of people in the United States of America do not get access to the kind of experience that college is celebrating. Mm-hmm. And then now it's problematic because, uh, well, it's killing people. <laughs> so I wonder, I don't what know do why think? I laughed so much. It's just, <laughs> that was a perfect joke. I don't want to laugh at killing people, but I appreciate what? it though. I do. I appreciate the, the immediate response. Um, like a gut laugh. Well, yeah. It's, yeah. It's like you laugh because it's so true and sad. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's been some interesting ideas, like what about college may change from this. So there was another article that the New York Times, their um, imprint, like the Intelligencer, I think is what it's called. Mm. That's a dumb name. It can't that be that. Maybe name. it is. Um, is that a word? I mean, I expect- no Intelligencer? I don't think so. It's like recordify. I, like a. It's a. I mean, all words are made up, so I guess it's a <laughs> word. Um, it's not true. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean it's not true? All words are made up. Where do they come from? Somebody made it up. That's how it works. <laughs> Um, oh, okay, fine. Is it a word that is supported by <laughs> the Oxford or Webster or whatever dictionary? Fair enough. I don't know. Why am I feeling like the smart guy today? I don't know why. I, maybe I'm, I, <laughs> I decided to pick a fight about a dumb word. Um, but here's what, here's what I was thinking. So there was an article they did, and, and the, the, the journalist of the article was suggesting that one of the things that might happen to universities during COVID-19 is that small local universities, which actually serve the largest portion of the population may not be able to sustain their work because students can't go and pay Mm. for the needs they have. And so then instead what would happen is that there would be a partnership. This is the, the premise. There'd be a partnership between big tech and maybe major universities to make access to places like Yale and Harvard um, easier, but at the same time still expensive and online, which would then, you know, even more so would be a competition that like a, lo- a local university like slick Salt Lake community college or snow college, like these small little community colleges could not compete with because now it's like Harvard and Apple are presenting an online, you know, degree program or whatever. That was the mm. suggestion that that journalist made, which is like, it's going to be the monopolization of these major universities. I mean, if all of a sudden everybody went to Harvard, it wouldn't make it a prestigious school anymore. And, and totally, they might get the, the attendees, the students, but the, the job, everything's just going to shift. Everything would shift from that, from getting a job to uh, really discrediting Harvard. I, I can't see, or Oxford or, or whatever other colleges are mm-hmm. in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if it would be a good thing. Yeah, I think in the article that I, we're going to post in the show notes references that article from the New York Times and it's like, I don't think that's possible because I think that what people pay for is the experience. And as long as that experience is still kind of sacred to the American ethos, it will continue to exist. Um, and people will continue to pay for it. Who has access to it? Yeah. I mean, the pandemic has brought to light some really interesting things 
and I think in a good way, right? It's brought to life that we can all work from home if we want to. Well, 99% of us. It's brought to life that, hey, we really did like the college experience. Um, it also brought to light, we really don't need movie theaters. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like, we, we like to go there, but they're getting, we want the more home theater experience if we're going to pay for it or pay a premium for it. Um, mm-hmm. And other things, too, like, um, I'm hoping that people go, oh, I don't have to drive as much, right? Like that, <laughs> or yeah, I can don't have to use so much single-use plastic or that kind of thing, so... I do hope that in that same line of thinking that you just said is that I do hope that it is disrupted enough because I think what students are frustrated right now is that they're not getting the college experience, but they're being required to pay college um, prices, the same level of like tuition that they would have paid if they were on campus having the experience And college tuition is ridiculous. And Mm -hmm. it's it's ridiculous for a lot of reasons. Mm -hmm. There's less and less state funding than ever before for college. And so, you know, it has to come from somewhere. But like what I would, I hope that there's a disruption of that, like that the kids no longer leave college with the same level of college debt that Tori and I did, that so many of my friends have, and that there's some kind of disruption to that. Like that if we can do this at home, you shouldn't, we should not have to pay this much for it. I hope that also happens in the same way movie theaters are being disrupted. <laughs> we need leaders to, to really uh, persuade that. And it's a bummer that we have not been able to uh, elect leaders who believe that education is a good thing, truly. Mm. And we all talk about it. Oh, education is a great thing. But we really need our leaders to say, yeah, it is. Let's raise our taxes so that we can pay for education. I don't understand why we don't vote for that and we don't get that. It just seems to be some kind of clay pigeon that everybody misses. Speaking of, mm. you know, giving a hunter hunting metaphor, but last words, hope for colleges, universities, and the college experience, and hope for our neighborhoods. Hmm. Well, I'll give you mine, but I'd like to hear yours. I am hope for college experience. I hope that the pandemic shifts some things in the way college education works to make it more accessible, both in terms of like the experience and connection that people get on colleges and also more affordable for all of us. And I hope that in terms of our neighborhoods, this thing that we talk about every week is that we would get more local, more connected to the neighbors around us and more convinced that if we can listen to them, hear what's happening in their lives, we get to join with something that's really beautiful. I hope that in this neighborhood, that events like these can bring people closer together and not instill mm-hmm. more fear. And I hope that I can be a part of helping spread peace over this neighborhood and listen more. Mm-hmm. Not just in the neighborhood, but listen more in life and be more aware and allow me, myself to be led in good ways. Hmm. Far as the college experience is concerned, I hope my kids go. <laughs> well, that ends our episode of Smart Guy, Dumb Guy. If you like the show, would you help us spread the word? Repost our stories from Instagram, tell a friend, or write a review. It really helps people find the show. If you do, let us know and we'll send you lots of hugs, smiley faces and maybe some tips on how to deal with really intense situations like Johnny gave me. (laughs) Find out more about us both on Instagram at smartguydumbguy. Thanks for listening, everyone. Yeah, thanks for listening. You have been listening to a Smart Guy and a Dumb Guy production, a podcast exploring culture, current events, and politics from both sides of the intellectual spectrum. See you next time. 
Thank you for listening to Smart Guy, Dumb Guy. We are taking a short break. We'll be back with fresh, new, smart, and dumb episodes right after the election. See you then.